Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Patience Adamu. And I'm Curtis Vermont, and this is The Drip, a podcast about political decision-making during a racial revolution. Stay tuned as we analyze Canadian news and Black issues on a weekly basis. And if you like what you hear, remember, people, subscribe. On this week's episode, we discuss some of the top headlines from the week of February 20th, including... Trudeau's liberals following through on tightening gun laws, for the most part. Jagmeet's NDP calling Trudeau out on pharmacare. The housing market devolving to insanity once again. More news on Khalil Sievright and the city of Toronto. Racist instances coming from the governor general's office. (laughs) The first migrant facility for children opens up under Biden. And plenty more. Okay, you ready? Let's do it. Jumping to our first story of the day, this week the Trudeau government took further steps to give us more than thoughts and prayers in the face of mass shootings on Canadian soil. In response to Nova Scotia's mass murder last April that left 23 members of the Portapique community dead, new legislation is being proposed to ban all assault-style weapons while giving more tools to the courts and cities to keep weapons off our streets in the first place. Here's a look at what the legislation does. It includes new red flag and yellow flag laws that will allow concerned friends or family to apply to the courts for the immediate removal of someone else's guns, as well as ask a chief firearms officer to suspend and review a person's license to own guns at all. Since gun smuggling from the United shithole, I mean, sorry, uh, the United (laughs) States of America is a major reason for gun violence in our cities. The legislation aims to stop guns from being illegally brought into the country by giving the RCMP and CBSA more resources, while increasing penalties for waste mans with burners. (laughs) There's also a voluntary buyback program that's meant to encourage assault-style gun owners to give them up, and cities are being given powers to effectively ban handguns through restrictions on movement and storage, which I'm sure Mayor John Tory will take full advantage of. Mm. Those who decide to keep the banned weapons would have to agree not to use them, import or acquire them, or bequeath them to anyone else. There's a two-year amnesty period that's been in place since May 2020 to give gun owners time to comply with the ban. That amnesty period will last until April 2022. So what are people saying about it? Yeah, um, reviews are mixed. Pro-gun control group Poli Se Souvien is upset that the buyback program isn't mandatory like it is in New Zealand and Australia. Suzanne Laplante-Edward, who lost her daughter in the École Polytechnique mass shooting, said, quote, My family and I have fought for three decades to ban these weapons. We thought we had won in the fall of 2019 when the Liberals announced with much pomp and circumstance that they would ban and buy back all of these killing machines, end quote. Chiefs of police and healthcare workers are happy with the red and yellow flag laws. Mississauga Mayor Bonnie Crombie said she welcomes the legislation, but would have preferred the handgun ban be mandatory. This is her quote. She said, 
Guns don't care about municipal boundaries and borders are porous. If we put a handgun ban in Mississauga, it would be largely symbolic if neighboring cities didn't implement one as well. Right. I hear that. In response, the feds say allowing towns and cities to craft their own bylaws respects the diverse needs of various communities. So now moving to the other side of the spectrum, I basically just recounted what reasonable people are saying. <laughs> <laughs> On the other side of the spectrum, Aaron O'Toole, his conservatives and the general gun lobby hate it, saying, quote, and this is O'Toole saying this, I think Mr. O'Trudeau misleads people when he tries to suggest that buying things back from hunters and other Canadians who are law-abiding is somehow going to solve the problem of shootings and criminal gang activity in the big cities. Shut unquote. up. Right? I, like, I love, I love that that side makes it sound like progressives are incompetent on this issue. Honestly. When really, we have the blood clot data on our side. Yeah. He's trying to make this a culture war between cities and rural communities. But here are the facts, okay? Let's look at straw buying to begin with. It's the act of legally buying weapons, then selling them illegally. Here in Canada, we're still compiling the data, but according to former Toronto Police Chief Mark Saunders, most guns used in crime in Toronto in 2018 were acquired domestically through how? Straw buying! Yeah. There's an example of a university student with a license who bought 22 guns in 16 weeks, then sold them to criminals. No one at the store, or the Canadian Firearms Office for that matter, raised any concern over the buyer's behavior. That's a huge failure. Crazy. Crazy. I also know that in Alberta, the head of their guns and gangs unit says straw buy accounts for most of the guns used in street crime there. This legislation clearly helps there. Here's another big fact from StatsCan. Per capita gun deaths are worse in rural Canada than they are in cities. 45% higher, in fact. And yet many think it's the opposite. I don't know that, yeah. Here's another point. When there's a gun in the home in rural areas... Homicide rates are three times higher than in cities, and suicide rates are five times higher. That source comes from the New England Journal of Medicine. Here's another one pertaining to women. There was a 2018 femicide report that showed 148 women were killed in Canada that year, and the most common method was by gun. There's also strong evidence that guns are used as intimidation tactics in domestic abuse situations, right. which was exactly the case in the Nova Scotia mass killing. And finally, 75% of gun deaths in Canada are by suicide. So no matter how you slice it, fam, this will save lives and make our communities safer. So shut up, Aaron. You sound like a tool. Now, the question is, do we feel the feds have struck the right balance on this issue? Should there even be a balance on this issue? Patience, what do you think? I mean, the example that you brought up about the university student who was able to buy 22 guns without having it flagged, like oh. 20, sorry, 22 guns in a 16-week period and not have it flagged by any kind of level of government yeah. is wild. Like, no one is paying attention because they don't care to. Right, right, right. So I think that that's, that's a huge thing. I think that... that um, we're, we're certainly moving in the right direction on this issue in terms of whether or not there should be a balance. I, I do live, I live beside a hunter. I live beside someone who goes wherever to, to kind of central and northern Ontario and hunts deer and, you know, brings them back 
to, uh, you know, here to sell or to eat or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I understand that there is a hunter, there's a hunting population, but again, hunters don't buy 22 guns over 16 weeks. And then also, I, I just think that that's where le- legislation plays a, a role, right? Is, is that p- folks maintaining their licenses, um, when they are, you know, hunters and, and are, are, are doing that, that, that kind of, I don't know if it's a hobby, but 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 have that yeah. as a pastime that they do. That that is very different and can be legislated differently than folks who are perpetuating the the, the business of gun ownership in this country. I don't know. What what do you think? Yeah, I mean, you're 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 exactly right. Um, and I just wanted to point out. I mean, what we're talking about here in banning these assault style weapons, there are still rifles, shotguns that are. Perfectly fine, perfectly legal. Right. We're yeah. talking about weapons that can easily be modified to mow down tens of, like, hundreds of people at once. Right. Right. And, and, and just to be clear, because I, I just made a comment that people might say, wait a minute, what are you talking about? In Canada, assault style weapons, they are actually limited to holding five bullets, right? As opposed oh. to the United States that may have like 30 in a clip, right? Wow. But it's very easy. To order a modifier to turn it into 30 or even 100 bullets. It's very easy. That's literally what happened at Ecole Polytechnique. So um, we're not talking about banning all weapons. So yes, this is entirely reasonable. And jumping particularly to my thoughts. Look, I get the gun industry wants to save their 25,000 jobs or whatever. But public safety is way more important. Full stop. Plus, like 80% of Canadians agree with us. So yeah. I've done the argument. You see me? Jumping to our next story for politics, this week in the House of Commons, Jagmeet Singh's NDP called Trudeau's liberals a bunch of liars, at least as it pertains to pharmacare. Jagmeet even went on social media to talk about the issue using a viral TikTok trend. He Choosing violence. <laughs> Choosing violence. He woke up and chose violence, my man. He posted the, 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 the video and it, the, the hashtag used in it was the disrespect. Tell me drug meat's not lit. Anyway, here's what happened. BC MP Peter Julian tabled Bill C-213, known as the Canada Pharmacare Act, but it was voted down by a majority of MPs 295 to 32, with the Conservatives, Bloc Québécois, and most Liberals voting against it. Julian's bill was first tabled a year ago and reintroduced in September after Parliament's prorogation. It would force provinces and territories to show a plan for a system that would be publicly administered by them that would be universal, comprehensive, accessible, and portable, meaning people wouldn't need a minimum period of residence before being covered. The NDP says it was first tabled in response to the 2019 report from Trudeau's advisory panel on pharmacare, which, by the way, was chaired by Ontario's former Liberal Health Minister, Eric Hoskins. Dr. Eric Hoskins, right? Dr. Eric Hoskins. Mm -hmm. That same report noted that about 20% of Canadians, or 7.5 million people, either lack prescription drug insurance or don't have enough to cover their needs. Mm-hmm. Jagmeet said the vote was a chance for the Liberals to act on a promise they've, quote, been making for over 24 years, yeah. dating back to the 1997 election. And honestly, I hear that. So I know enough reasonable people are probably asking, yo, Justin, Wagwan, what are you doing? For real. <laughs> well, for his part, JT says he agrees that no Canadian should have to choose between paying for their medication or putting food on the table, and is committed to universal pharmacare while reminding us that his government was the one to lower the cost of prescription drugs to begin with, while conceding there's more to do. Okay, and... He doesn't support the bill, though, 
because it infringes on provincial jurisdiction, which may not sound like something important, but it is. Legislation like this could be mired in court challenges, especially when we're dealing with provinces like Quebec, Alberta, or even Ontario under Dougie. Case in point, Bloc MP Luc Terriot said the bill, quote, completely violates Quebec's jurisdiction, end quote, and said his party would oppose the proposed legislation as, quote, the voice of Quebec in Ottawa, which means the bill is counterproductive. The PM also accused the NDP of pulling a political stunt and making it seem like pharmacare can be delivered with the wave of a magic wand underscoring the complexities of the matter. So what are our thoughts on this, Patience? So I understand that, uh, that there's provincial jurisdiction and there's federal jurisdiction and that this is a, a challenge to that. But I, I think that um, we should be moving in this direction. And I would assume that the liberals would be supportive of this. I mean, to Singh's point, the liberals have been wanting to do this for 24 years, or at least saying that they've been wanting to do this uh, for 24 years. Mm-hmm. So why not even just let it go to committee and, and let it fail there? I I um, have the have the privilege right now of having um, you know full drug coverage with my with, with the company that I work for, but like all my life really until I I got uh, this job or the, the job before this job I didn't and that's a that's a tough life man yeah. having to to figure out you know knowing exactly what is wrong with you but not being able to afford the medication that's mm. that's a really it's a difficult thing and it's it's something you know Canada talks so highly about our national universal healthcare but um the lack of pharmacare makes healthcare a little bit um it makes it out of reach for for certain people yeah we're we're literally the only developed country that has universal healthcare but no universal pharma right what do you think about this yeah no i i i basically agree i mean you know at the end of the day 90% of Canadians support pharmacare. We could save $4 billion annually on our healthcare costs once the system is fully running. And it would give 7.5 million Canadians a better quality of life. Plus, it saves lives. I, I appreciate the fact that the feds already have a plan for implementing um, pharmacare, and they took steps toward that in 2019 and 2020. But I'm okay with the NDP forcing their hand a bit on this issue. Let's get it done. Jumping to the Canadian economy, here's a story that puts the housing market into perspective. Home buyers in the GTA are back to throwing stupid sums of money at properties that don't deserve it at all, just to get their piece of the Canadian dream. And it's got real estate agents like Sean Lackey in Durham worried, since normally this level of competition would be for the most desirable homes, not, quote, little shacks. That's <laughs> <laughs> little shacks. He points to a recent example on Olive Street in Oshawa, where an 1,100-square-foot house was listed with an asking price of 650000 and sold for 802000 after five people straight bullied the process by submitting bids ahead of the date scheduled for reviewing offers. Wow. And you know how much the, the house was worth not even three years ago, Patience? How much? $200,000. No, quadrupled in value? It quadrupled in less than three years. In 2018, it was $200,000. Yeah, shout out to the schwa. Shout out to... <laughs> but wow. wait, there's more. Okay. <laughs> Another bungalow of about the same size was listed with an asking price of $4.99 in Oshawa. How much do you think that one sold for? 
let's say maybe 600? 713. That's crazy. Even smaller towns further east, like one I've never heard of called Orono, Ontario. What? Is feeling the intensity. One house had an asking price of 499000 and sold for 731000 That's even more than the Oshawa example. Yo, where's Orono, though? Do they have, do they have a go train or a go... <laughs> go bus go there? Like, where is that? Wow. I'm going to Google it just now. Like, are you nuts? And none of this really makes sense since, as Sean points out, quote, if you're paying $800,000, how long do you have to live there until the market catches up to your home? It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. In other words, it's not simply about owning a home. It's about making a profit. Hmm. So what's driving all of this? Some of the action is from first-time buyers, for sure, but there's an influx of folks buying in the suburbs after selling in the city, where they would have fetched a major premium. Mm. The good news is people like Sean expect the runaway prices to slow as we put more inventory on the market, and tools like Toronto's vacancy tax should help with that. So that's the real estate market for those who are looking to buy. What about for tenants? Turns out there's wide agreement that rents will likely jump 4% by the end of the year. Wow. Market observers like Ben Myers of Bullpen Research and Consulting expect prices to continue dropping before heading up as of June. Other observers like Jason Leonard of RentSync think prices will bottom out in March instead, giving people a bit less time to scoop something up. Now, we know the market will rebound due to the reasons we all hear about, right? Like continued rollout of the vaccines and Mm -hmm. the border inevitably opening up again due to immigration. But there are other factors too. For one, data from Toronto Census shows the highest share of adults living with their parents in comparison to any other city in Canada, insinuating that many would take the opportunity to leave mom and dad's place as soon as they could. Mm-hmm. But will they choose Toronto as their destination? Mm. If you consider what's happening in commercial real estate in the city, you might think that the answer is actually no, since Toronto office vacancies are expected to keep rising this year as employers continue letting their staff work from home even as the city eventually reopens. And according to CBRE's market outlook, commercial vacancies downtown will rise 12%, up from 7% in 2020, and 2% in 2019. Wow. Yeah. And demand for rental units of all sizes went up in regions outside the city, suggesting people ain't about staying in the concrete jungle if they don't have to. So here's the question. Do you think large cities and towns will return to what they were before COVID? Or do we think smaller regions like Durham or Shelburne or London is where it'll be at moving forward? I think what what I've been hearing a little bit of, just in from just from my community of, of millennials and people of color, is that 
people really can't live in boxes anymore. Mm. People really need to, or people really want to have backyards and, uh, you know, people don't want to be trapped in the same room as their spouse or their children anymore. So space is really, uh, something that, that people have just recognized is a, a really important thing. So I, I, I don't think that, that the, the cities, the, the large cities are going to, are going to return to the way that they were before. I don't think that they will be as densely populated. Uh, I do think that we will see smaller regions like Durham or Shelburne or, or London or Hamilton for that matter, becoming destinations because, um, if you can work from home even a couple of days a week, uh, and if you can, you know, have your space, have your, your 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 additional bedroom for your office or a gym in your home, these are things that people now recognize as valuable. Whereas before, we took for granted that the, that good life would always be open, mm-hmm. and that you know the bar in the basement or in the in our building, you know, would always be open. All of these things would kind of always be there. We've taken that for granted. So I I don't think the cities are going to be as they were. Before I did some research, I agreed with you 100%. And I I think I still do. But like, I I watched a Rotman presentation on COVID-19 and the future of cities with two leading experts. And they basically pointed to how badly prior diseases and other upheavals, like even the, the recent recession, the Great Recession, mm-hmm. ravaged cities, and yet cities came roaring back, right? Mm. So I guess there's that. We'll, we'll have to wait and see, right? Moving on to blackity black black news, we have a little update for you on Khalil Sievright and uh, Tiny Shelters Toronto. The city of Toronto is seeking a permanent restraining order against Tiny Shelters Toronto. They want an order that would permanently restrain Sievright from placing or relocating structures on city-owned land. They say that installing structures in city parks is against its bylaws, which prohibit camping and living in parks. Also, for the uh, injunction that we spoke about last week, a hearing date has not yet been set. So we're waiting to hear from that. Uh, According to folks who are the beneficiaries of Tiny Shelters Toronto, folks are saying, quote, I think it's the best thing that has happened to the city of Toronto. Without these shelters, people would be dropping left, right, and center, end quote. I just wanted to add a little note about Sievright just at the end here because I, I wasn't aware of this. Um, but Khalil Sievright himself slept in one of these self-made shelters one winter while living in Vancouver to help protect himself against negative 15 degrees Celsius weather conditions. He really, really hopes that all of the awareness and, and the videos that he's created with uh, folks who are unhoused will really help encourage the city of Toronto to find a way to work together. In Sievright's statement, he added, quote, Encampment residents tell me how important the tiny shelters have been for safety, for privacy, for dignity. I hope that there will be a day that the tiny shelters are no longer needed, but that day has not yet come. End quote. Thoughts on this? Any any additional um, stuff you want to share about this, Curtis? I just want to speak directly to John Tory. Brother, I like you. You're doing well. You've been doing real well through this pandemic, in fact even giving $6.4 million to black organizations to make sure that we are uh, secure in this time. Mm -hmm. But this act, 
this ain't it, man. This ain't it. And, and, you know, even you and I, patients, we talked about it last week, talking about uh, the vantage point of municipalities where they have to look out for, uh, you know, basically the legal ramifications of people dying in these, in these ways. Right. right. But, you know, I, when I, when I looked at the video that uh, Khalil released at the behest of his lawyers, we have to make sure we put that out, that we, we state that, right. um, he clearly stated that the concern of fire or, or health and well, like that is non-existent because each of these structures has a fire extinguisher, has a, a carbon monoxide uh, alarm, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So these, the reasons why the city is claiming these encampments can't exist, it, to me so far, is bullshit. Again, John Tory, you've been doing well fix this situation and make sure that those who need this sort of support get the support they need. Moving on to our next story, a former Rideau Hall employee, AKA an employee of the governor general's office who resigned in June is warning that problems at the institution go well beyond workplace harassment and include an instance of racism that drove her to leave the public service altogether. Khadija Al-Hilali says that the Rideau Hall workplace is, quote, toxic, unhealthy, and unsafe, end quote, for employees who are BIPOC. She said that the discrimination she experienced working for that office took a toll on her mental health. She also told CBC News that she chose to end her contract early after management reprimanded her for sharing her feelings about racism and the death of George Floyd at the hands of Minnesota police in an email she sent to staff. She said a white employee was later praised as courageous for raising the same issues at work. Sounds about right. Come on. Al-Hilali said that within 10 minutes of sending the email, she received a call from a member of management who said that the governor general office's second in command, DiLorenzo, had seen the message and had asked that it be recalled immediately because it was political. CBC News contacted DiLorenzo for comment, but did not receive a response from her or the law firm representing her. Al-Hilali said, quote, the tone was very aggressive. I was told that this was a political matter and the organization is apolitical. I tried for a few minutes to explain how this racial equality is not a political matter. It's not something that's up for debate, end quote. Rideau Hall did not refute or address any of the specifics of El Hilali's case in its response to CBC News. The office said it's in an important period of renewal and is, quote, taking meaningful action regarding the unjust treatment of Black people, other racialized groups, and Indigenous peoples in our society, end quote. You know, Curtis, I think this speaks again to the necessity of education. If even in some of our most dignified offices in Canada, we can't see the difference between something being a political issue and something being a a human rights issue. What do you think? You know, I, I really want to jump or point out the how does that make sense when Trudeau appointed this governor general in particular to be a beacon of feminism? Right. <laughs> right. And so this office has been I mean, I've heard some of Payette's speeches. She's, she's very political in, in, in this case. If she wants to use that terminology, she's very political in talking about feminism, which no one should have a problem with. Only only people who are sexist have problems with that, right? So how does it not apply the same way with racism, you idiot? 
I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not like, come on, man. No, it's, it's crazy. I, I think, I think a number of our listeners may have had these same comments made at their places of work, you know, where you, you want to bring up what has happened with Black Lives Matter and with this movement and folks are telling you, uh, or pe- folks are taking out specific references or, or telling you not to talk about it because it's political. It's, it, it really points to, um, a real serious ignorance in our society and a refusal to, to really deal with some of these issues that, that are happening in the States, but also underpin our own society. 100%. The first migrant facility for children has now opened under Biden. And people are saying, you know, potato, potato, or you know tomato tomato <laughs> is this not the same thing you know apparently the same shit that was happening under trump is happening under biden when it comes to the children of undocumented migrant entrants into the u.s the white house defended the facility on tuesday saying that it was only temporary and is needed because of the pandemic The Biden administration is still expelling all children who arrive with their parents uh, at the border under pandemic-related restrictions enacted by Trump, but it is taking children who arrive unaccompanied into custody, straining the capacity of permanent shelters that have been forced to to have, meaning divide in half, their bed space amid the, the pandemic. The Biden administration has maintained that it has no choice but to reopen the facilities in light of capacity restrictions during the pandemic and more children arriving on the border, but that the welfare of children remains a primary concern. I, I understand the the argument in terms of, you know, its relation to the pandemic, but listen, Biden-Harris came really hard for Trump on this exact this exact matter. And folks like AOC are not sitting quietly you know, waiting for them to resolve this. Folks are yelling from the sidelines that this is not okay. Mm. What are your thoughts on this one, Curtis? Honestly, um, it's one of those things for me where the answer is very clear, but the circumstances make it a bit muddier. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I and so in, in a way, what I'll say is, um, you know, I, I totally respect AOC and any other progressive who is shitting on Biden. And Harris right now, I think it's necessary, but I, I, I'm, I don't know if I'm at that point yet. That's fair. I, I, you know, I, I just, the circumstances matter. Right. And it does take longer than two months, not even two months yet. It does take longer than six weeks to unravel uh, a, a, an entire system of, you know, separating children from their parents and putting them in certain protective care and... Uh, all that and and certainly amidst amidst a, a pandemic, it's um, yeah, it's a difficult circumstance, like you said. Well, even in that Vox article, um, you know that you that you read, mm-hmm. um, I mean, what I saw was that essentially that so this is the organization that handles these issues; it always has kind of right. thing. And so, you know, kind of speaking to what you just said, patients, you can't just stand up a new organization snap of a finger. Right. You know, at the same time, it's like, I, I'm not talking to complacency. I'm not saying, you know, because we can't do things faster, we should. Like, it, it's complicated. Right. It's complicated. I'll leave it there. Yeah. 
this week for questions for the audience. Adamson Barbecue has been ordered to pay for the police services that were required at his establishment during the pandemic to the tune of $187,000. Do you agree that he should be punished for draining the city's resources for his privilege, ignorance, and clear disdain for public health? Or is this a gross sign of state overreach? Thank you so much for joining us, everyone. We're releasing pods on a weekly basis, so subscribe to stay up to date. We now have our own Instagram page dedicated to the podcast. Follow us at The Drift To You. Black people, we hope that you know that this is a safe space for you. So if you have any feedback or questions, feel free to slide in our DMs and let us know what's up. We'd also like to give a special shout out to Stephen Fissett, who graciously provided artwork for this podcast. If you like what you see, you can find him on Instagram at Scarborough Debutante. That's Scarborough, D-E-B-U-T-A-N-T-E for all your graphic design needs. See y'all next time.